back to our new podcast today we have a very special guest uh, straight from harvard uh, because he lives in uk and also graduated uh, harvard twice uh, i would like to uh, let you guys know what is what is his majors uh, first in 2003 he went to in indian statistical institute minor in biological science also he studied uh, statistics in this university and he made the master in science in the exact same university between 2006 till 2008 and after that he went to Harvard University did the master in science again in biostatistics and after that he started PhD in biostatistics since 2008 till 2012 that Uh, London Olympics. That time he got the PhD from Harvard. Congratulations and also welcome to our show. Thank you very much for accepting my invitation. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Yeah. So, uh, why you did the uh, masters in twice? Uh, I mean, masters in two times. So I finished my masters from India before going to Harvard to do a PhD. Oh. But uh, in all U.S. universities, you have to first do two years of coursework before you have an exam to see if you have learned enough, and then you are allowed to actually start research for your PhD. And at the end of the exam, if you pass it, they also give you a free masters to go with it. Oh, free masters! <laughs> so you have two. Yeah. Can I have one after this conversation? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> If you teach me a lot uh, during this conversation, uh, d- during this podcast, I would like to have one. Sure. Yeah. Now, at the beginning of this conversation, I would like to know why you choose to study statistics and also in biology. Mm-hmm. So, what made you choose that uh, field? In India, I think. Uh, you might have the kind of same situation in Mongolia or other countries in East Asia that parents want you to do a study in either engineering or medicine because they want you to get a good job. So it's the same situation in my state as well. But in the city that I live, there is this research institute called Indian Statistical Institute, which is uh, quite famous for studying statistics. And in fact, when India got independence from Britain, it was one of the first institutes that the government of India started. Because as a new country, we wanted to know uh, how many livestock we had, how much uh, area for agriculture we have, and so on. So that's how my institute started. But then it did a lot of research in statistics, and I got to know about this institute. And statistics is not a subject that people study in India that much. Oh, we study maths, but we don't normally study statistics. But I thought statistics is very interesting as an area where you can apply mathematics, which is very theoretical, mm-hmm. to real life problems, to real life data. So I thought that is quite interesting, and that's something I can do, which is. Somewhat different from the standard subjects that people study. 
So that's why I decided to study statistics for my undergraduate. But uh, I also didn't leave the traditional subject of biology and medicine completely. And that's partly because um, we have a very nice museum in our uh, home city, mm-hmm. which uh, shows the huge variety of ethnicities from different parts of India, their appearance, their culture and everything. And we, from our university, we went to, on to a trip to this museum. We st- looked at all this diversity and we were told that this is something that you can actually analyze with data. Oh, like their appearance. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that's really interesting and that links to uh, things that are tangible, to things that we can see, things that we can understand and things that are important to us, like our appearance, our health and so on. So I thought that statistics can be applied to any data. Mm-hmm. Like it can be applied to uh, finance, economics. It can be applied to um, health and so on. So I thought that this is something that's really important application of statistics. And therefore, that's what I decided to study. So I decided to do a minor in biological science. And then when I went to Harvard, I had a choice of applying for pure statistics or biostatistics. So I chose biostatistics and it's actually based in the School of Public Health. So we do a lot of research on public health. So that's where I decided to do my PhD in because I thought it's a really important area of application. Mm-hmm. Why? So health is, of course, very important to us. And uh, from all the areas where you can apply statistics, health is probably the most important area which has a direct impact on us, on our daily lives. And also there is, this is a new area of research where uh, there's a lot of scope to contribute and do new research. Mm-hmm. So that's why I thought that among all the other application areas, health is probably one of the most important ones that I can study. Okay. Um, what is the biggest advantage of knowing uh, biological statistics? I mean, statistics in biology, because uh, it's very a uh, broad uh, field of study, I guess. And then what it covers. Now, you mentioned that uh, our, mm, our human body's uh, biology have shown how many percentage already there's a how many percentage of us that unknown not studied yet well it's hard to put a number but i mm-hmm. would say that uh, modern research in biology in medicine is very much data driven so on one hand you have uh, clinical trials where you are discovering new drugs in the laboratory, but then you have to show that the drug actually does something. So for example, the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm -hmm. When the scientists in Oxford discovered their vaccine, they had to prove that it works. So they had to do what is called a clinical trial. So they had to recruit participants. They either give them the drug or they give them a false drug. And then they have to measure whether the people who are actually getting the drug are healthier. Mm -hmm. And you have to collect data. You have to recruit participants. You have to count how many people are doing better, how many people are doing worse. Mm -hmm. And you analyze the data with statistics to give a conclusion of how good the drug is. And same with other aspects, like if you're doing a brain imaging, you're doing MRI, then these images are being analyzed by computer algorithms 
to say you have some kind of tumor in your brain or something so from every aspect in biology in anatomy in medicine in health you have data that have to be analyzed in a formal way mm-hmm. there are other aspects uh, which are called case studies so say a doctor treats a patient who has say something unique or an abnormality and then the doctor writes a report on that specific patient but that specific knowledge is not going to be applicable to everyone whereas if you're using uh, statistics to determine whether covid-19 vaccine is useful or not that information then is beneficial for everyone so in modern medical research you need statistics for almost every purpose mm-hmm. um While I was reading your biography, uh, I found out that uh, you like to study in biomedical characteristics uh, such as skin color, face shapes. So when it comes to skin color and face shapes uh, between the different ethnicities, and in my understanding, it's like you know genetically why we shape this way because of uh what kind of genotypes that we have that makes our shape a uh, face shape like this way or you now that you know these kind of genotypes makes our face shape this way you can manipulate that genotype to change the face shape and skin color maybe hair color is that true So the first part of your question was whether we know which genes cause a uh, skin color or hair color or face shape. Mm-hmm. And the answer is to a certain extent yes, different appearance features have been studied in different amounts. Like there has been a lot of research on skin color. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of it done in uh, white European ethnicity people in Europe or in US. Yeah. uh but uh there has been also some research on other things like face shape in fact our research group was one of the first groups to actually study face shape in non-european ethnicities uh-huh. and one of the unique things about studying different ethnicities is that although we all have the same genes we have different genetic variations within different locations of the gene so what you call genotypes yeah these are variations at a specific location and different ethnicities can have different genotypes so say white people have only one kind of genotype and east asian people have only the other kind of genotype say for example mm-hmm. and therefore different ethnicities have different genotypes contributing to different characteristics in different ways and also we were um one of the first groups to show that uh white people have white skin color yeah that has been studied a lot but the similar pale skin color in east asians had not been studied so much there have been some studies in china but we studied a multi ethnic group of people to show that white skin color in east asians evolved independently wow when, when people moved out of africa they moved into the northern latitudes mm-hmm. and they received less skin color and they st- sorry they received less uv radiation from mm-hmm. the sun and they started to evolve lighter skin color but that 
to a certain extent happened independently separately in Europe and in East Asia mm-hmm. that's something we were able to show in our research so what that means is that East Asian people have different genetic variants that contribute to their lighter skin color than Europeans although you have the same appearance of skin color mm-hmm. you actually have different underlying genetic causes that that makes this and uh, that's why i said that skin color is one of the most well studied things also because it's one of the things that we notice first when we look at someone mm-hmm. but there are other aspects like uh, eye color and hair color that's also been to a certain extent well studied and uh, these are characteristics that have a bigger genetic basis so when we study genes mm-hmm. and their contributions to uh, appearance we prefer to quantify them we prefer to put a number so we say that um eye color is a characteristic which is almost 100% explained by your genes whereas skin color is less explained say maybe 80% and the 20% is environmental or external exposure like if you get a lot of sunlight you'll get tanned and your skin color becomes darker or red mm-hmm. but um, if you look at face shape face shape also is affected by a lot of things so for example if you have say more fat you have uh, say you're more obese or very thin mm-hmm. then your face shape is going to change so it's not just genes it's also your environment but yes we have studied face shape and other research groups have found some genes that impact face shape and again this is interesting because we studied this multi ethnic groups uh and we were able to say that east asians they they have certain unique facial mm-hmm. appearance that is separate from say europeans mm-hmm. and one of that is uh east asian nose shape and we were able to see that the east asian nose shape probably evolved Uh, again once you start moving to northern colder latitudes probably as an adaptation to the colder climate so yes yeah, so these are things that we can say by looking at people's genetics mm-hmm. but for that we need to look at diverse people's genetics most genetics research have been done on white people so we really need more research on diverse ethnicities including mongolians yeah but to answer your second part of the question of mm-hmm. whether we can change it yeah that of course is a difficult question ethically uh and legally but just in terms of the science whether it's possible or not then uh there's the question of practicality like when you're changing an embryo with crispr or these kind of things you know that uh chinese scientist who did this research uh and there was legal repercussions on him but even in his research most of the embryos that he died to change didn't work out. Uh-huh. So there's that experimental side of it that the, the they said they went to jail, right? Yes, yeah. But uh, I'm talking about the science side of it yeah, and yeah, yeah. that that his experiments were still not very successful. Mm-hmm. But in my research I highlight a different aspect and that is a gene that changes something say your hair shape actually changes a lot of other things. So one of the genes that we study a lot is called uh, edar and this gene changes your hair shape this gene actually works when you're a tiny embryo mm-hmm. it works on the entire outer layer of your embryo it changes 
all the things that comes out of that layer including your teeth your ears the bones of your face so you might want to say that i want thinner hair like europeans and i want the scientist to change edar in my child's embryo but that would change say your child's face shape and teeth shape and everything is that something you really want maybe or maybe not mm-hmm. but also the other thing is we have done some research on edar so we can say these are five things or these are 10 things that edar impacts we might not even know the other things that edar impacts unless we do more research so it's really a very tricky situation where you are playing with things that you don't know and therefore we don't recommend doing this unless you're doing diagnostics uh-huh. where uh, things that actually in the UK the NHS routinely does uh, so they would scan your genome for known major changes that can give you susceptibility to major diseases like down syndrome so when uh, a mother is pregnant they can do the scan and they can say your child is affected with this very severe birth defect or uh, uh, then they will give the mother a choice what mm-hmm. what you want to do to want to carry this pregnancy to term and so on uh, so these are major medical factors in which it makes sense to do the diagnostics and sometimes they can even do things like gene therapy on the baby when the baby is born to make sure that the baby then lives a healthy life but just for cosmetic reasons mm-hmm. scientists won't recommend that so did i understood uh, correctly or not uh, manipulating or changing the genotypes are illegal by law or it's just etic- ethically uh, non-doable? There are different laws in different countries and because this is such a new area of research, a lot of countries don't have explicit laws. Mm-hmm. But uh, most of the countries who have laws on this actually restrict it quite severely and only... Uh, allow research on certain aspects like gene therapy where it's a life-threatening disease for the baby. Mm-hmm. But probably as more research would be carried out and as in the case of China, the research was done without a lot of prior ethical approval and then the government took action only when the fact was known that the researcher has done this research. Probably a lot of countries would be doing catch-up in implementing laws but in general i think is the ethical question is there that the the legal basis would be based on the ethics of it and again different countries may have different perspectives mhm so uh, very common uh, very common knowledge i would say knowledge because uh, it's just uh, people thinks uh, why your hair is gray it's because of your genes and you are very young but your hair is uh, gray same as your father does because your father has a uh, gray hair in early stage it because of the genotype or the living condition which one is the which one has a more impact on it so we st- studied hair graying uh, and we were able to find only one gene that affected hair graying and that uh, gene had a genetic variant that was only present in european populations 
But that doesn't mean that East Asian people or South Asian people don't grow grey, right? Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of research to be done. But uh, we try to quantify the impact on any particular characteristic on the proportion that that genes have a factor. And for hair growing, we saw that there's a lot of environmental effects. So stress, exposure to pollution, even diet the chemicals that you apply like shampoos and things everything has a substantial impact on hair graying or even hair baldness so genes definitely play a role but on these traits not so much mm-hmm. not so much not so much and the other thing is that if you look at people who are 100 years of age probably all of them will have gray hair right yes but if you look at people at 20 years of age probably some people will have gray hair but most people will have black hair and that's the difference between early graying or early balding and late balding which maybe everyone has so at which stage you're looking at also makes a difference in the scientific question that you're asking so we studied early age graying when is more genetic mm-hmm. because external factors haven't had all the time to have the impact and at that stage we saw some genes that were connected to hair graying but overall i think environmental factors and external factors have a bigger impact mm-hmm. all right so now like maybe it could be a very controversial question because um, i have over here one uh, genetic genetic studies results that made on my genetics uh, a few years back i i i took my saliva and then sent it to this company and they send me back the reports and this one is uh my talent and personality so i have a f- few pages that says uh different uh results okay this one let me read it to you uh this one says cocaine right uh based on your genotype you have a high genetic propensity towards cocaine dependence however other ge- genetics and uh, clinical factors can also influence in addictions so uh what do you think about this results and how accurate it can be we scientists call these kind of reports genetic astrology genetic astrology, astrology because uh-huh. this is like fortune telling they're telling you things very <laughs> confidently without any connection to facts i wouldn't say without any connection to facts but barely any connection to facts uh-huh. and the reason is that uh when you are predicting something you have to know the genetic basis of it and as i said for skin color we know pretty well the genetic basis and we also know that genes have a huge impact on on skin color uh-huh. but there are other things as i said for example balding that external factors play play a much bigger role and i also said that we found one of the first genes to be associated with balding and that gene may be explained 1% of the variation in balding that we see in people so that means that if only we, 1% only 1% so if we took that genetic variation and we tried to predict balding on people i would be explaining 1% and 99% of it would be unexplained 
but if based on that i gave a report as conclusive as this without telling people how accurate my prediction is mm-hmm. it's essentially going to be astrology oh. and the second part is most of the genetics research so far is done in white people white people in europe white people in america in our study we looked at a diverse ethnicity of people uh, from latin america so you know latin america is a mix of white african native american and other ethnicities and asians But, yes mm. but the particular genetic variant that we saw were only present in europeans that variant was not present in east asians not present in africans now do africans or east asians do they go gray of course they go gray and there are going to be other genetic factors but that genetic factor we found were only relevant for europeans i could use that to make a prediction in europeans and explain 1% but because east asian people don't have it if i use that to make a prediction is to east asians i would explain 0% mm-hmm. right so it doesn't really make sense to have that kind of knowledge very basic knowledge and you see in this report they're talking about one gene and if you dig deeper they're probably going to base it on a specific genetic variation within that gene and they're making such a confident statement based on that without even telling you how accurate their results are and even that understanding of accuracy is probably going to be based on white people based on research that were done by some scientist group in white people they don't even say that for you as a mongolian person as east asian ethnic person the accuracy is going to be different and this is our guess of accuracy so they don't say any of these things and then they make such a confidence prediction that you're going to be cocaine addicted you're not going to be cocaine addicted so that's why we call it astrology and we <laughs> tell people not rely on these things ah oh. wow but it's a standout business <laughs> it is a very lucrative business because yes. people don't know all the difficulties in making a good scientific prediction the companies are not going to tell you they're just going to say yeah take my product we're going to make a prediction on you wow so but uh, wow it's and it's bad the, i feel bad uh, paying much money for just to get the yeah. not accurate information exactly and that's the other part of uh the ethical difficulty when you're trying to do uh, embryo manipulation uh-huh. if you got this report for your child when he or she was an embryo mm-hmm. and you saw a worrying report that they are going to be addicted to cocaine and you ask a scientist to make this modification but you know that if you knew that this is very inaccurate then you probably wouldn't have done that but the report is not going to tell you that so this is the other aspect that you are probably thinking about making uh, manipulations in the embryo based on knowledge that's very inaccurate and that's the other ethical problem in doing that oh so uh, because of uh, lack of study in our ethnicity we don't have uh, much information that back up our genetical uh, genetical results could be this or that So yes. is there any way for us like today we can check um, our maybe check our body or give the test the genetic test to know do I have a talent on sports field or not like specifically that 
is it uh, doable or not i think for those kind of things it's very without having a data yes yes no i think for those kind of things it's very inappropriate to try to make predictions because uh-huh. again for talent uh there are different when you say talent i mean of course it's skill and probably it's some kind of innate biological advantage now different sports need very different kinds of physical advantage so for example ian phelps the famous swimmer yeah uh he probably has certain advantages because he's very tall so his limbs are very long mm-hmm. and apparently i say this from memory but there was some research done into him so that he doesn't produce as much lactic acid in his muscles when he exercises them so he get tired less uh, so he gets tired more slowly so he can endure more the stress more resistant yeah and uh, <coughs> probably the same for uh, runners now mm-hmm. short running like 50 meters 100 meters probably going to require different body characteristics than marathon running so when you say athletic uh, ability it means different things based on which athletics you're doing and again there is not going to be a single prediction that's going to give you athletic ability for everything mm-hmm. okay what kind of uh, genotype could tell you your iq level would be higher like intellectual level would be better than normal people is there any nothing nothing, nothing. so there are studies in mm-hmm. uh, iq specifically as defined by the the standard definition of iq mm-hmm. but again that was research done on fight people to define that iq scale and different ethnicities who have different social cultures different education systems might need different kinds of ways to measure intelligence mm-hmm. for example we south asians we go to school we are told to memorize things even math like formula we are told to memorize whereas other ethnicities probably they are taught other skills like problem solving so our ways of measuring iq is not going to be the same because we have grown up in different ways but in general if you th- talk about brain function and if you talk about say a very specific task for memory you can measure how quickly or how well some people are doing and you can study genetics and people have done that on big groups of people and millions of people and they have found a lot of genes that that impacted now mm-hmm. of course brain is a very complicated machine and they have found thousands of genetic variants that explain maybe 0.1% and all of these together constitute brain function in one person so there is no way you can change one gene or one genetic variant in a person and make them smarter or dumber it's not going to work like that <laughs> okay that w- that question was very dumb <laughs> <laughs> but still you know uh, when you uh, uh, meet with the gene always you ask what's the shortest way to get uh, like get rich or to get clever right so it's like uh, once i have a statistical uh, a biostatistic engineer <laughs> my first question would be like how to get clever <laughs> that was my question but uh, now i would like to know your current subject of research what do you doing by now and why you choose that field 
I study the application of genetics uh, onto different biomedical questions. Uh, for example, factors that can give us a higher risk of skin cancer mm. or factors that, as we already discussed, change our skin color. Yeah. And we also try to, uh, for our appearance characteristics, we also try to take the understanding of the genetic basis mm-hmm. and try to make predictions. Now, that's another big business in forensics. You get a bit of DNA from crime scene, you put that on a forensics DNA system, as you see in movies, and it gives you a prediction of how the person looks like. Yeah. And that, like all of the research, is very biased for ethnicities. It, in a lot of cases, it just gives you predictions of a generic black person in the US. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to improve prediction. We're not trying to do forensics in the consumer level sense. Like we're not going to sell this to uh, police uh, to make money. Uh-huh. We're just trying to do this as research. And because we're not trying to sell it like this company, we are usually very straightforward on how our accuracy is, how good or how bad it is. Mm-hmm. But also there's an interesting avenue of research these days, and that's with ancient DNA. So you would know that uh, scientists, archaeologists, they have uh, done excavations in various caves in, in Siberia and Mongolia, in China and other parts of the world. And they have found uh, ancient bones of our ancestors or even Neanderthal peoples. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to understand how these people lived, but they were also able to extract DNA from these bones. Wow. And then they were able to make predictions of their appearance, of their lifestyle from, from this DNA. So again, because we are trying to make predictions on living people, we're also trying to see how we can extend this and try to make predictions on ancient people and how they looked, how they lived. So these are the different uh, things. What was the results? How beautiful they, <laughs> they were. <laughs> So it's quite interesting and it's uh, not something that people expect. So you know that there's a lot of racism in essentially every country, but in in, uh, Europe and US as well, like white people now because they're in a position of wealth and power in these countries. Mm -hmm. They think that they are superior and they have always been superior. So when the first ancient DNA came out of Britain and then they saw that these people were actually darker skinned, the the racists they were really sad they said no no they can, they cannot be our ancestors because we are white we've always been white yeah. and whiteness is our identity is our power so ancient DNA research has this ability to make really interesting findings and uh, tell us uh, things like how these people adapted because as I said uh, we saw that East Asian people and European people evolved light skin differently mm-hmm. and uh, we were able to say that by looking at DNA of modern people but once we have DNA from ancient people we can understand this evolution even better mm-hmm. wow uh, as much as da- data you could have um, more prediction you guys could do accurately Yes. Um, let me quote something from the Google Five years ago, Mrs. Angelina Jolie was uh, elected to proceed with the prophylactic double um, 
mastectomy after undergoing genetic screening and uh, learning that she had a significantly elevated risk of developing breast cancer due to mutation of the BRCA1 gene. So um, about this uh, mutation, what's going on with that? And even our body can have that gene and can be evolving uh, we, before we're transmitting it to our babies? Yes. So what's the process of it? So mutations are happening in our body all the time. Mm-hmm. Just whenever our cells are dividing and we have billions of cells that are dividing every time. And uh, when you go out in the sun, you get UV rays on your skin. Uh, some of the DNA in your skin is mm-hmm. mutated. Now, that has the risk then that you can have skin cancer. And that is actually one of the common risks that white people have more because they don't have uh, darker skin. Mm-hmm like us South Asians and therefore they have a higher risk of DNA damage from UV and that's why lighter skinned people are recommended to use sunscreen Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah mutations are happening in our body all the time and we can get tumors and we can even get cancer but we only get uh, mutations that we transmit if that is in our sperm or in our eggs Mm -hmm. now uh, only if you have mutations like that that you can transmit and again because mutation is happening naturally in our body all the time as you age your sperm cells are having more and more mutations so when men have children at older age there's higher chance for those children to have more mutations now most of these mutations are actually not really that harmful because only certain parts of genes have a huge impact Mm -hmm. Uh, but then there are certain mutations like the one you were discussing in the context of Angelina yeah. Jolie that actually are rare because they are mutations that are well known and they have a big impact on your risk of cancer. And therefore, these are part of standard diagnostic tests in the Western world that can tell you your risk of um, skin cancer. Sorry, your risk of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. But it's only really true for a few cancers like breast cancer for other cancers like uh, say lung cancer or melanoma it is not as well understood mm-hmm. and as i said like for cancers like lung cancer or skin cancer that has a much higher environmental effect like if you're exposed to very high pollution you have a much higher risk of lung cancer if you're smoking you have a much higher risk of lung cancer so these kind of factors often give you a much higher risk of cancer than your genetics breast cancer is unique in the sense that we have some better understanding of only very specific genes but those genes if you can diagnose them if you know that you have higher risk it makes sense to act upon it but i would say that that's very rare and most of the tests that you do like these tests Mm-hmm. they don't have that much detail in the testing that they do and they're not able to tell you any information about your risk to those kind of cancer. Mm-hmm. I would like to know what's the speed of the mut- mutation. Uh, do you know there's a habit-forming uh, period? It's like uh, more than 21 days. If you do something, it can form a habit. Uh, becoming a habit, the probability to become a habit it's higher. So 
the mutation uh, period is uh, mutation speed that can happen on your DNA could be related to have to form habit uh, the, 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 the speed of forming habit there's not a direct correlation but of course uh, yeah you can ask how frequent mutation is uh-huh. the answer is that mutation is very frequent it's more frequent in places that have more external exposure like our skin our lungs even our throat yes Uh, these places have a higher risk of mutation because they are more exposed to external factors like our skin with sun CV rays. Mm-hmm. But all the cells in our body, they have random mutations happening all the time. And also these cells have inherent mechanisms that correct these mutations to a certain extent. They're, they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're happening all the time and this is probably not something that we can do much about. So there's But maybe I'm misunderstanding it, uh, but uh, the genetic mutation, it's pretty similar that uh, uh, if we smoke cigarette one day, I'm going to transmit uh, the, a, a lung problem to my kid exactly the same amount as I smoked one day. Is that so or uh. not? I don't think you can make such a direct relationship because again, if you're smoking, your uh-huh. lung cells are being exposed to the smoke. Yeah. Your sperm cells are not being exposed to the smoke in the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are the some of the nicotine and some of the harmful factors are being circulated in the blood and they're going to go to the, the sperm cell, but not as much. So I don't think you can make such a direct connection mm-hmm. to it, but It's proportional in the way that the more you smoke, the more likely it makes. It's not a perfect relationship because a lot of people smoke and then don't have lung cancer. Yes. So it's not a perfect relationship, but there is a roughly proportional relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, during this uh, period of time uh, of studying biostatistics, uh, do you find any um, techniques or methods related to uh, changing a genotypes or uh, making some uh, unknown tool uh, to change your specific specific uh, uh, your body or anything that related to your family is there anything that we don't know that you know <laughs> well that's a very interesting question because as you say we try to understand our appearance yeah that is already there mm-hmm. but i was part of a research group uh, at harvard and it's a big collaboration of researchers from different parts from switzerland from us in the uk and other other parts we were trying to study skin cancer melanoma oh. and the group was trying to understand uh, a particular gene called nnt and how it affects skin cancer. Mm-hmm. I was not part of the experimental group, so I can only give you a basic overview. But what they saw is that this particular gene in its part of a broad group of genes that produces uh, an increased risk of skin cancer, say if the gene is more active or it has a lesser chance of skin cancer if the gene is less active. 
And because it's skin cancer, they were trying to find a chemical that, say, if you apply on your skin, it reduces the activity of the gene and therefore it gives you a lesser risk of skin cancer. So something that blocks or reduces the activity of the gene. Uh-huh. And they found uh, a chemical that led to do that, started experimenting with mice uh, and then some skin samples on a culture plate. But of course, that's not equivalent to testing on us real humans. So mm-hmm. this is only the beginning. We we published the paper as a first step, but now they're doing much more experiments in trying to see whether it works on humans, whether it has any side effects or how accurate it is or how effective it is and and so on so it's going to take much more research but that's one of the aspects that you say if the the medicine actually works maybe after several more years of research then that can directly affect me as a person like i can use that maybe protect myself from skin cancer mm-hmm. speaking of skin uh there's a uh, some disease or uh, disorder that called vitiligo so it's what's the reason that happening vitiligo to certain people so we have melanin in our skin in yeah. in various amounts and melanin is uh, the chemical that is produced by our skin cells that give us color mm-hmm. and uh, i have more melanin that's why i'm darker skin than you yeah. uh, but in vitiligo this process of melanin production just stops and it's the same as our hair growing gray because our hair is also black because of melanin so when melanin production stops at the hair follicle our hair grows gray same in vitiligo when melanin production stops in our skin our skin goes completely white and that is vitiligo mm-hmm. so that's the stoppage of the normal production of melanin that we have in our skin mm-hmm. is there any uh technique that that fix it completely i don't know much about it because the cosmetics or the application side of this kind of research is not something that i do myself uh-huh. like if we discovered a genetic variant for vitiligo then maybe pharmaceutical companies would do research on that like how to stop its effect but I, that's not something i do myself so i don't know a lot about mm-hmm so uh, you know lately I've, i hear about uh, many um, treatments or techniques uh, on certain thing twinnings so genetic factors that uh, can be responsible for twinnings so you know uh, embryos they they divide embryos into two and then making it uh, twin kids so uh this process uh it's unna- in unnatural right i i believe it's unnatural but there's a uh, people doing it is there any disadvantage that could be not in the uh not in the dead kids uh, period of life maybe the second generation of uh, the twinning embryos Twinning is not unnatural in the sense that being left-handed is not unnatural. Left-handedness is common in the population is about 10% of the people. And same in twinning. The twinning 
exists in populations. Every ethnic group has twinning in different rates. And uh, there are some animals. I, I, I'm, I'm preferring, I, I'm, I mean, I'm referring twinnings uh, doing manually. Ah, okay. Medically. Medically. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, twinning... It's uh, just, uh, I just want to know okay, your yeah. opinion, right? Yeah. No, twinning is uh, a natural process that we humans have anyway. But there yeah. are two different kinds of twinning that are biologically very different. Mm-hmm. Identical twins, in which one embryo splits. Yeah. Both copies are identical. And the other one is fraternal twins, in which the mother releases two eggs at the same time. And therefore, two eggs are fertilized and they grow up into two different siblings and they can be male, female even. Mm-hmm. Whereas identical twins have to be same sex. So twinning uh, happens in different ways depending on identical or non-identical. But if you look at natural twinning, mm-hmm. uh, we think that twinning is in a way, say, helpful because human pregnancy is costly to the mother and costly to the present in terms of the physical stress yes. and all the effort. So if you get two for the price of one and sometimes, say, if you have a high, mortal, high child mortality rate, it may be beneficial to you to have more kids so you can uh, leave more offspring and spread your genes. Mm-hmm. So we think that there are some evolutionary advantages for twinning. But there are also more stress on the mother's body for twin, and also the twins in in mother's belly is a cramped space, and sometimes it leads to one of the twin dying even. Yeah. So there are both advantages and disadvantages of the natural process of twinning. Now, when you do twinning experimentally, like they do in IVF, because they sometimes implant multiple embryos just to be sure that at least one embryo grows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the same factors are into play, like the twins, maybe they have more stress. So the research shows that when you have twins, the average birth weight of the twins are less than a normal single birth baby. So, yeah, there are advantages and disadvantages. Uh, so, yeah, I would say there's some mixed mic. Okay, now I get that. Uh, it's just... Um, um I just want to know your opinion. That's it. Uh, and now I would like to know that uh, there's a topics that you like to touch uh, is uh, misunderstanding and misuse of statistics. So what do you mean by misunderstanding of statistics? So when you have a set of numbers, when you have data, yeah. you apply statistics, you can do it in many different ways. And there's a saying in statistics that torture the numbers until they confess. <laughs> what that Torture. means is that uh-huh. you you can apply different statistical techniques and get completely different conclusions. Mm-hmm. So I actually teach one example in which you have a clinical trial. So someone is building a medicine for treating something, say COVID-19. And you study that in one group mm-hmm. and you see a negative result. So the drug doesn't work. You study in another group, say males and females, and the drug also doesn't work. But you combine the data and then the drug appears to be beneficial. And that can happen in real life. And that actually had happened in real life 
and there are many examples of that. So when you are doing something like that, when you're doing clinical trials and the way you analyze the data has such a huge impact, you can actually recommend a wrong medicine that actually is harmful, but you manipulate the numbers in a way or you analyze them in a way that you give the opposite conclusion. It's actually going to impact the lives of all the people who are going to use that medicine. Mm-hmm. So this is what I teach when I talk about misuse of statistics, that if you are doing it by mistake or if you're doing it intentionally because you're a bad researcher, an analysis of data can have such huge impacts that you have to be careful about it. Both as someone getting information, say, from a pharmaceutical company, Antwerp, and both as a statistician who is going to work in a pharmaceutical company or anywhere else, really, wherever there is data that can have such a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I want to shift to non-scientific topic. Uh, I want to start with uh, how do you feel uh, when you arrived in Mongolia? It was uh, different than your expectation or... Well, Mongolia is a pretty less uh, touristy place, right? Not not many people come here. So we didn't have a lot of like preconceived idea of Mongolia. But we had a very good friend in Mongolia who welcomed us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually, we arrived in the middle of the night. So next morning when we saw Mongolia, the first impression of me was that it was very close to home. Uh-huh. In a way that the streets... Uh, other people, the cars, everything is much more similar to us back home in India than in UK where I live now. Mm-hmm. So I really loved it. Uh, well, but then Ulaanbaatar is not Mongolia. It's just uh, a part of it. It's just part of it, and mm-hmm. a lot of people tell us that we have to get out of the city and see the other side of Mongolia. Mm-hmm. But what we have seen so far, we have really loved it. Is uh, as I said, like I have not been to India since the pandemic so I have not seen my family for three years but coming here it felt like I'm in India uh, going back to my place it's a very nice feeling mm-hmm. speaking of family I just uh, remembered that uh, at the beginning of this conversation you mentioned uh, why you choose this uh, major this field of study that uh, your parents uh, supported you to study math- mathematics like it's very common when it comes to India that the parents want you to be a mathematician or something related with the maths or something related with the medicine. You know, the top 10 tech companies CEOs are, are comes from India. And then what is that? Is that uh, related with the culture or it's just uh, based on data? So how are you guys deciding? Now, I, I mean, how Indian parents mm-hmm. uh, deciding these two majors are? Uh, I wouldn't say maths because maths is a pretty theoretical subject by itself. And if you study it, you can only become a mathematician. Yeah, but it's a base of many things. Yes, you know? what Indian parents want is for their kids to study engineering. Uh-huh. And uh, when we were growing up, the craze was computer technology IT that mm-hmm. kind of thing is a growing subject and yeah every parent wanted their kid to study that 
but i think it's mostly related to having a secure job a guarantee of earning well mm-hmm. which every parent wants for their kid but in a competitive place like india or i would say probably most <laughs> asian places are like that or <laughs> even uh, any developing nation like even africa probably mm-hmm. would have the same urge for their kids to do well to get a secure well paid job so i think it's mostly that is kind of also the social culture that these jobs are considered well paying and well known and mm-hmm. there are lots of universities to study so i guess is probably that more than the specific appeal of those subjects mhm Now this is like my first time ever uh, doing a podcast uh, with someone who's graduated with the two majors of Harvard. You know, the Harvard is one of the biggest and the hardest university that you can pass. And uh, oh yeah, uh, in 2017 I I met with uh, one of uh, Harvard's teacher psychologist Steven Pinker oh, wow. in in Puebla, Mexico. Mm-hmm. That was a coincidence. And uh yeah, just want to know uh, studying over there and uh, being in the center of the knowledge, you know, the what's the beauty of it? Just uh like uh, uh recall it. And uh, how how did you felt? Well, I'm going to disappoint you by saying that I don't consider Harvard to be the center of the knowledge or oh, wow. or any famous university. I mean in in a lot of sense Harvard is probably in terms of academically mm-hmm. it's similar to a lot of other universities so the there are university rankings for every subject separately mm-hmm. and when i went to study there was a competition between harvard school of public health and johns hopkins school of public health like one year one would be on top and the other year the other one would be on top and uh, actually i I would be honest and say that I got admitted to both but I chose Harvard because Harvard but is famous but once I went there and I worked with researchers from other universities I wouldn't say that uh the researchers at other universities are any less than than Harvard mm-hmm. a lot of times the university rankings will tell you outright that this particular other university does better in ranking but again ranking is only some sort of average numerical measure you're talking about the talent of specific researchers researchers maybe their research area mm-hmm. and everything is different in different universities but i would say harvard is or or any other university imperial uh in in the uk is very famous but none of them are really that different than than other universities are you sure about that <laughs> you know you going to give influence on me that i'm not going to go to harvard because of you said that <laughs> <laughs> well i would say it's more social and in a way you know harvard had that big admission scandal that a lot of rich parents were just getting fake certificates for their kids that they are impressive athletically because everyone who has grades high grades wants to go to harvard and there may be a thousand people with perfect grades and who harvard selects is a random decision that's based on external factors like athletics mm-hmm. and these people were just getting fake certificates so how would you say when these people are at harvard would you call them the smartest kids they're not they they got into harvard by cheating so it's 
really i would say in a way some people in harvard are quite snob because they think they're at harvard they're arrogant but then the average person at harvard like me who doesn't have that background is just you know i could have been at johns hopkins i could have been at any other place uh so yeah i mean you you go to harvard in a way to network maybe like uh if a certain famous person teaches there like the famous indian economist amartya sen was teaching there and you maybe you talk to them and yeah you get some exposure but then uh i went to the uk and uh, then i met him at another event in the uk so you don't have to even go to harvard to meet him so that's why i say like it's yeah it's a mix of probably networking networking mm-hmm. even more important than uh studying because a lot of people go there just to network mm-hmm. uh but yeah academically i think that a lot of universities are similar and a specific department a specific researcher might be doing better than a- another specific researcher at harvard in something mm-hmm. thank you very much for saying that you know uh, i just want to clarify that this guy has a two degrees from harvard saying it so <laughs> now it's like uh, don't be proud of that you graduated from harvard because it's same as any other university only your advantage is you having a a bigger network that's it yeah is that so and you have that on your cv if you want to sell you can sell it <laughs> yeah sure yeah yeah so that's about it and um uh thank you for having um, this time to spread information to my audience no thank you for inviting me on your show I really enjoyed it and it's a unique experience doing uh, this podcast in mongolia so thank you very much for that that pleasure was mine and i hope you guys understood what we uh try to express and uh yeah of course uh, always uh, giving you new information is my goal my team's goal and we try to do it uh as much as possible and always at the end i wish you the happiness that you're looking for comes to you uh, way before than expected and thanks for having us on your devices maybe you're hearing us on on your phone watching us on your laptop whatever you see us thank you for staying with us until now and uh yeah see you next time have a great day